the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And I have been rehearsing all day. I've been practicing all day to make sure I didn't say welcome to the Monday show. Because I know it's Tuesday, but it feels like Monday. And I was going to give you all the Monday announcements. And my producer even reminded me about the Monday announcements. But it's Tuesday, so I don't have anything to do except answer your questions. And we can do that by... Answering your phone calls, you can call 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. Or you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send uh, your questions in using our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, especially with the wet streets. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the one button, call now, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. I hope you had a great Labor Day. Uh, Paul and I, we just kind of kicked back. We went to a movie, but we had to leave because they took the Lord's name in vain. But other than that, we just kind of went out and got something to eat, and I got to hang out with the prettiest girl in Texas. So I had a really good Labor Day. Uh, I also hope that you had a great weekend in church. Uh, We did. And um, I trust that that was your experience as well. People get saved every Sunday. I love that. Let me go right to some questions. Now, this first question I'm going to have to edit um, severely here because it is really, really long. uh, And I'll get to the point. Uh, It's from our email inbox from Charles. Uh, he says, thank you for answering my question about Luke 23:43 last Friday afternoon on the radio. Uh, you mentioned later on in the program that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, referring to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and 9. I know that most mainstream Christians interpret these two Corinthian verses as evidence that saved Christians ascend to heaven immediately after death, remaining fully conscious during the transition. However, I'm having trouble, great trouble, reconciling your interpretation of those Corinthians passages with the interpretation on a certain web page on the internet. Now, let me stop right there, Charles, because I'm going to explain to the audience what this is about. And I don't know whether it's you. Uh, I do know the passage that you're talking about on the internet is um, uh, I I know there's an agenda there. If you are reading something on the internet, believe me, that doesn't make it true. And it doesn't matter how logical they make it. It doesn't matter what human arguments they make it. Um, the internet doesn't validate the Bible. The Bible validates the information we receive wherever it's from. And this particular webpage, and this is for the uh, listeners here, Charles, is one who is trying to insist that we don't go directly into the presence of the Lord, but that we enter into soul sleep. It is a law um, versus grace website, and uh, it's just somebody with an agenda. The Bible has no agenda. 
And while you quote some Greek here, Charles, about what the Greek means, it means we would prefer rather to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's not what it says at all. In fact, in the Corinthians passages, Paul is is talking about a contrast between being here in the body or at home with the Lord. So it's not a matter of preferring. It's not a matter of willing to be absent from the body or present from the Lord. That's not in the Greek at all. And when you go to these websites and they twist and they turn the Greek, um, the only way, Charles, you can believe it is if you want to. The only way that you can believe it is if you want to. Um, one of the questions that I did want to address here is in your long, long list of, of what you consider to be proof text, you use John 3.13, where Jesus says that no man has ascended to heaven. Um, and, you know, your, your argument is that, well, if nobody's been to heaven, then nobody could have gone to be with Jesus at that point. I want you to remember something. Luke chapter 16 tells us where all of the righteous dead went. And they didn't go up, they went down into a place called paradise. So when you went to great lengths here to link me to the website and to, I think, convince me of your position that we have soul sleep and that we someday will be conscious again, that is a position that has been inconsistent with Orthodox Christian teaching for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years. And, and Charles, for the life of me, I can't imagine why anybody would want to believe that we go into position of soul sleep rather than being immediately with the Lord when Second Corinthians passages are really, really clear. The contrast is, I would prefer to die is better by far, Paul says to the Philippians. In the Corinthians, he's simply noting contrast. To die and be with Jesus is best, and to be absent from our body, to die from the physical body, our spirit, that's when we're present with the Lord. And and the, 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 the logical bridges you're trying to build are neither logical, nor do they have any value at all in Scripture. It would not be better to be with Jesus uh, I mean, to, to, to be absent from the body and be soul sleep than it would be to be with Jesus. And the point Paul is making is simply saying, he, he's trying to uh, con, uh, convince us that when we are struggling with this life and death struggle, Paul and I were talking about this this weekend, we all have this tension to want to live. And Paul had that same tension. He talks about it to the Corinthians, he talks about it to the, to, uh, the Philippians. But the tension is, well, what do I do if I die and be with Jesus? Now, remember, Paul had been with Jesus. But to be with Jesus is better by far. But if we're not with Jesus, then what's the point? And if your contention is that the Apostle Paul is now sleeping, you miss the point of his writing. So, Charles, again, I, ho- I hope that makes sense. Um, what the author says in the above quote quotation means nothing to me. Um, he's starting out with an agenda. Uh, what I want is I don't want you to believe it. Um, the minute we are absent from the body, we are with the Lord. So, Charles, I hope that answers. I couldn't read your whole question because it was pages long. Here is a question from our email inbox from Kirby. Uh, what law in Acts 21, 20, and 24 um, is being referred to as it relates to the Christian Jews? And then the question is, yes, the law of Moses. Yes, Kirby, she's talking about the law of Moses. We just uh, taught this in our study this past Friday night. And um, uh, the reference there is to the law of Moses. Again, in the passage being described, uh, there were Jews insisting Christians with Jewish backgrounds, Jews who became believers, born-again Christians, and real believers, James, the Lord's half-brother among them. But they were zealously holding on to the law, and they wanted Paul to prove to everybody that he was still zealously holding on to the law, when in fact he wasn't. But it was the law of Moses. Now, here's another thing that we need to understand about the law. There's something about the law that makes us strive to try to keep it. When Jesus has made it really, really clear 
that the law should only point us to him. He does so in Galatians when he says that the law is a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. And this constant battle that began in the very early, early, early church, the first century church, was, well, if Jews become Christians, do they have to keep the law? Do they have to celebrate the feasts and the festivals? Do they have to keep the Sabbath? Do they have to be circumcised? Or are we saved by grace through faith? And Paul was always confronting that problem. Now, here 2,000 years later, Kirby, we've still got people who are trying to uh, insist that we have to do things, we have to keep rules, um, when in fact um, Christianity alone and all of the religions of the world, and, and you listeners know I don't like referring to Christianity as, as a religion, but, but to, to, for comparison's sake, Christianity alone is based on what God has done for us rather than what we can do for God. And, and while that ought to be the best news possible for people, there's something about that that just grates on our Christian nerves. As humans, we think, no, if I do more, God will be more pleased, or God will bless me more, when in fact what God wants us to do is accept the fact that he loved us at all. I love the fact that Jesus loved me when I didn't love him. I love the fact that he didn't give me a set of rules that I had to keep in order to be his and get to heaven. All he did was make me an offer. Give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. And yet so many of us as Christians, once we make that transaction, we then try to strive to prove God made a good decision. Well, saving me was the best thing you ever did, Lord. I'll, I'll be your servant now. No, we're served because he loved us. And he chose us. He didn't love us or choose us because we served. Grace is a picture of rest before work. The law is a picture, a horrible picture of work before rest. The problem is once we start striving, we will never stop trying to push the envelope. So, Kirby, thank you for the question. Here is another question, this one from our mobile app from Nacho. In Luke chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, in the minutia of following the Sabbath, how would the Pharisees miss the fact that Jesus spoke to the healing, or spoke the healing to the man with the shriveled hand, and that he did not outwardly touch the man? Wasn't it an act of labor that violated the law? Um, it was generally, as it related to that context of that passage, again, that was the, the topic of our study this past Sunday in church. The topic of the passage was was reaping and sowing. You know, they were, Jesus' disciples were going through the grain fields, and they were plucking some grain, rubbing it between their hands, and in the process putting it in their mouth and being able to, to, to be nourished. Um, and, and that was work on the Sabbath, but it was also held by the rabbis. And this is one of the things, Nacho, that Jesus tried to knock down in the minds and hearts of the Jewish religious leaders. In, in the rabbinical teachings, uh, the act of healing itself, whether it was done by God or anybody else, the act of healing was a violation of the Sabbath. So when Jesus would heal somebody, and he gave many descriptions and, and, and comparisons. If any of you had a sheep and it fell into a wall, wouldn't you save it? If it was a Sabbath, of course you would. Well, how much more? One of God's sheep. And the problem, of course, is that they believed so strongly in the Sabbath that they would hold that God wouldn't heal on the Sabbath because that would be a violation. Jesus' whole point and we're just getting going good in the Gospel of Luke. But throughout the entire Gospel, the same thing is true in, in Matthew's Gospel especially, but in all the Gospels, is they were always trying to catch him violating the Sabbath law because that was the most important law. Jewish rabbis held that if the, if the Messiah were to come, if the Christ were to come, and everybody claimed they wanted the Christ to come, he couldn't come until the Sabbath was kept perfectly for one full day. So if one Sabbath went by where every Jew strictly kept the law of the Sabbath, 
then the Messiah would come. So you can understand why they place such importance on it. But the problem with it was that they didn't understand it themselves. And Jesus' whole point, as he will say very plainly, is the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And again, with apologies, because it's sort of like the last question, we humans have always been trying to prove that we can do what God says. I always think about Moses coming down from the mountain, seeing the fire and the shaking. They were at the base of the mountain, and the, the, the masses of people in Exodus were terrified. And they didn't want to go talk to God anymore. No, Moses, you go talk to him for us, and you tell us what he says, and we'll do everything that he says. So when Moses came down with the law, their response was, we will do everything. You remember Mount Gerizim and Ebal, blessings and cursings. We will do all that the Lord says. Well, when Moses came down with the tablets containing the law, they were already engaged in revelry, a violation of the law. And man's been trying to prove that we can do it when, in fact, we can't. So, Nacho, I hope that answers your question. But to them, touching him wouldn't have made a difference because just the act of healing itself would have been a violation of the law. We would love your life. Calls today, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Vince. Would you please repeat your position on tithing again? Uh, Vince, yeah, I can do it fairly quickly. I get asked this question quite a bit. Um, Tithing is not a New Testament principle. Um, in response to grace, the new covenant, our response ought to be far greater, far more encompassing than giving a tenth. That's what the word tithe means. And yet we have maintained for 2,000 years this argument about, well, tithing. We're not under the law. The law of the tithe was never given, nor was it even mentioned to God's church. It was for Israel, for Jews. And if we don't separate, make a distinction between Israel and God's church, they're two completely separate and distinct entities, then we're going to get all kinds of things messed up. So tithing, you know, the proponent of tithing will say, yeah, but tithing was given for the law, before the law. Abraham gave the Lord a tenth. Well, that has nothing to do with our relationship with God. That wasn't a pattern that God was establishing. When we come to the New Testament, we find that we owe everything to God, not a tenth. I think Christians, um, we like the idea of a tithe because it gives us a standard. We kind of get off cheap. It doesn't require us to say to the Lord every single day, Lord, everything I have is yours. What do you want today? All my money, all my time, all my talent is yours. Now, he's going to let you keep most of your stuff. But the idea is that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifice. Remember the sacrifice in the Old Testament that were sacrificed on the altar were fully, completely consumed by fire. Well, that's why Paul uses that same imagery in Romans chapter 12, the first verse. What does God want from us? He wants us to offer everything that we have, everything that we are and ever will be. And then he wants us to be transform, not conform to the world that we live in, but transform. We do that by the renewing of our mind. Then he says we'll be able to test and approve what God's perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will is. Now the problem is we, most of us, don't have enough faith to say, Lord, it's all yours. Not 10 cents out of every dollar, but 100 cents out of every dollar. It's all yours. Now on the other side, I think the problem is pastors. I think we makes it easier for us to budget. Um, if I know how much money is coming in, if I have membership and I can make every member sign a pledge to give 10% of their income and they tell me what their income is, well, then I can know about what the uh, uh, money that's supposed to come in every month is going to be. And if I know the amount of money, then I can say, well, I can do this or I can't do this. Instead, I think what the Lord wants us to do is say, Jesus, I trust you. All my stuff is yours. What do you want me to do with it? Again, he's going to let you keep most of it. 
But there is not a single reference in the New Testament to tithing as it relates to the church. People say, well, Jesus said you tithe and it's right that you do so. He did, but remember, Jesus came to Jews. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And Jesus was speaking to Jews under the law. I don't know why we forget that in the upper room, Jesus raised the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That means the old is gone. That's what he said to the Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus announced that radical transformation with the cup of the new covenant written in his blood. So that's our position on tithing here. In fact, we don't let people know what our needs are, nor do we ask for money. We don't even pass a plate here at Calvary Chapel or a hat or a offering bag. Our offering statement takes 20 seconds. I think God wants us just to trust Him. So I hope that answers your question. Thanks for sending it in. Victor asks, How could Jesus' death pay the price for everybody's sin since we know that everyone will not be saved? Well, Victor, there's not a one-to-one relationship in that. Jesus' death was efficient, or the word is efficacious, for the whole world. For the whole world. But it's only effective for those who receive it. See, he makes an offer of salvation, forgiveness of sins. Though your sins were as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. But when they do that, we have to say, okay, thank you for the gift. I'll take it. And that's the only way we're saved. So Jesus' death is efficient or effective for the whole world. But it only works when we receive it. In other words, he doesn't cram it down your throat. His death paid for the sins of the whole world. Without the shedding of blood, without dying, there's no remission of sins. Jesus did his part. The rest of it is up to us. 340-9585. Let's go to Roland on line one. Roland, thanks for calling again. You're on the air. Pastor Ron, thank you. God bless you, sir. My question is, my question is, sir, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Because God enjoys that. Jesus said mm. to pray to God in the Spirit. What does that mean? I'll take your answer on the radio. Thank you. God bless thank, you. Thank you very much, Roland. God bless you. Hope you're doing well. Um, to pray in the Spirit, it also says God is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So to pray in the Spirit is to pray in the will of God. Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Roland, when he said, Nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. Jesus rightfully made his request known to the Lord, if there's any way this can pass. But his father said no. So Jesus' prayer was, okay, your will's better than my will. So I want what you want. And that's what it means to pray in the Spirit. Roland, it does not mean to pray in tongues. That has nothing to do with it, and that has been misinterpreted so many times over the years. It means, very simply, to pray in the will of God. When we're walking with Jesus, when we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, then our prayers are going to be prayers that are offered in the will of God. And we know that if he hears our prayers, those prayers in the will of God he hears. If he hears our prayers, then we have what we've asked for. So that's what it means to pray in the Spirit. It means to pray with his heart, to pray with his mind. We can only pray in the Spirit after uh, rightfully confessing our sins. We don't want anything to, to violate that. But again, Roland, it does not mean at all to pray in tongues. Uh, it simply means, now it doesn't exclude praying in tongues. The gift of tongues, I don't think I'll get to it today, but I've got a question about tongues uh, that was sent in to me. But uh, when we're praying in tongues and, and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we are praying in the will of God, even though we don't know usually what it is that we're praying for. Uh, but uh, it, it means to pray in the perfect will of God. And almost no other commandment in Scripture comes with an ironclad guarantee. David said in the Psalms, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
that doesn't mean if I delight myself in Jesus, he's going to give me everything I always wanted. What it means is that the desires that are in my heart are going to be the desires that he placed there. And since he placed them there, he wants me to pray and he wants me to ask. So that's what it means to pray in the spirit. It means to pray in the will of God. And that is a prayer that we absolutely can be assured will get answered 100% of the time. Now, God always answers prayers. Many times it's no. Many of times the answer is with silence, meaning it's not now. And there are times when he says yes. But those prayers that are in his will, he always, always answers with yes. You know, Roland, one of the things that, that... I hope you've experienced, I hope everybody in this listening audience has experienced it. There are those times when we come to the Lord, our hearts are grateful, and, and we, we have, our hearts are full, and there's times when Jesus has almost interrupted me and saying, come on, I want to say yes. And that's when I can trust Him with my heart, and I can pray and ask for some of the most wonderful things. Those are the prayers that are in the Spirit of God. And they are based in truth. Roland, thanks for the question. We have 30 minutes left in the Tuesday program of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program it's tuesday and we've got 30 minutes left to your questions 340-9585 brian is on line one brian thanks for calling you're on the air got a quick question for you I just noticed okay. it. I've read it before, but never really noticed it. Noticed it. In uh, Philippians 1, uh, verse 6, at the end of that verse, it says, um, let me see, a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, uh, Christ Jesus. And then over in verse 10, he also says, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What does he mean by the day of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, and the day of Christ? Is that the second coming when he comes back? Yes, it is. Thank you for that, Brian. You know, a lot of people say, well, because we, we are New Testament Christians, we're to look for the rapture of the church. This isn't a reference to the rapture. The day of Christ Jesus always refers to that day when he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, he destroys his enemy of the world, and then the process of establishing his kingdom is at hand. So the day of Christ is always when he comes back in victory. It's the day described in Revelation chapter 9. So uh, no other day. It's not the rapture. Uh, it's not uh, after the great white throne judgment. It's the day when he sets everything right. The curse is reversed and, uh, and, and the earth is refreshed and restored. It's not made completely new yet, but it's that day when he comes. We will be with him, Brian, when he comes. Um, and um, that day can't come soon enough for me. So thank you, Brian. I appreciate it very, very much. I love when people say, you know, I've read this before, but I never saw it. That's why we read the Bible over and over and over. I one time had somebody say to me, well, Pastor Ron, how many times have you read the Bible? And, and I wasn't trying to sound spiritual. I said, I don't know, a hundred. I, I don't know. And, and th- this was a woman, and she said, well, once you've read it, why do you have to read it again? And the, the wonderful answer is because the, the word is living and active, sharper than the double-edged sword. It meets you where you are. It moves with you. It doesn't change, but it moves with you. So, Brian, good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question that was sent in to the studio. Patty says, is being legally married in the New Testament? I've been told people can live together, and it's okay. Patty, you've been told that by people who want to have sex and not be married. And that's a sin. And so the only way that sex is permitted is to be married. All other sex is fornication. 
yes, being legally married in the New Testament in different cultures, uh, uh, celebrated marriage and, and consummated marriage in different ways and rules. But we live in a country where we're told in Romans 13 to abide by the rules of our of our nation. And we do that, and one of those is for a man and a woman to be married. They've got to be legally married. I had somebody say to me, well, it's just a piece of paper. That doesn't change how we feel about each other, but it does change how the law views you. And, uh, Patty, if there is a man telling you this, and he's telling you that so that you can live together, you can have sex together, but he doesn't want to make a commitment to you, please don't listen to that nonsense. All sex outside of marriage is sin. It separates you from God. And not only is it true that God cannot bless a relationship that's born in and remains in sin, it means that the relationship itself is outside of God's will. So you have to be married. You don't have to be married in church. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars to have a successful wedding. But you have to have a license and a commitment. And you have to be married by a recognized official, whether it's a justice of the peace, a a judge, a clerk, or your pastor. But you have to be legally married. And please, 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 Patty, don't settle for being less. It is not okay. Not only is it not okay, um, it it shuts you off from God. He loves you, but he can't bless you. He can't talk to you. He can't hear from you. Because basically you're saying, Jesus, I know you told me to live holy, to flee from sexual immorality. I know all those things, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. We live in a time, Patty, when... People justify anything and almost everything they want to do. And what they try to do is pretend that God understands why that's the case. So I hope you're not in a situation where you're living with somebody that you're not married to or having sex with somebody you're not married to. But if you are, Patty, repent of your sin and come to Jesus. Richard says, how many times do we receive the Holy Spirit after we're saved? Do we need to get it more than once? Richard, um, after we're saved, we need the power of the Holy Spirit every day. It's not receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, The moment we're born again, uh, Jesus gives us his Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 says, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's when it's like Jesus putting his stamp of approval on us. Now you're mine. Now, if you repent of your sins, if you genuinely ask Jesus to forgive you and save you, you're his and you'll always be his. Now, having said that, a lot of times people have an emotional moment. They don't really mean it when they say it. That's between them and God. But we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit and he comes to live relationally with us, in us. Now, in order to do anything for the Lord, and by that I mean any service at all, whether it's to pray effectively, uh, to, to be a good employee, a good husband, a good good wife, a good father, a good mother, um, uh, to, to represent Jesus wherever we go, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power, that's the third experience of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is epi, E-P-I. And it means he comes upon us in power. You might remember, Richard, when um, Peter and John and the others were at the gate beautiful and they saw the beggar at the gate. He expected to get something from them. He was asking for for money from them. And and in an instant, Peter said, Gold and silver have I none. What I have I give to you in the name of Christ. Rise and walk. That was because the power of the Spirit came upon Peter. A word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, but then the power to heal, to impart healing. And all he had to do was take a step of faith and communicate it. And, of course, we know that the beggar got healed. But here's the thing, Richard. Sometimes people have an experience with the Holy Spirit. They will speak in tongues. Sometimes it'll be really, really emotional. But none of that is necessary to be filled and refilled every minute of every day. Acts 5.32 says the trigger for being filled with the Spirit is obedience. God gives the Holy Spirit the context there is always in power. 
to those who obey. So tomorrow, Richard, if you get up and you say, Jesus, today I'm yours. My time is not my own. My time belongs to you. Now, we know we're going to go to work. We know whatever it is we're going to do. But, Lord, you interrupt anything and everything because I want to serve you. And then you take a step of faith, walk out of your home, take Jesus with you, and that power will be at your disposal all day, every day. It does me no good today, Richard, to have had an experience with God yesterday. I had a great day yesterday. I said that in the beginning. Got to rest, which was really good. I got to spend some time with Paula. But none of that has any value today. Today, I've got to renew that commitment. Jesus, I'm yours. What do you want for me today? How can I serve? Divine appointments, Lord, I'll pray. A lady that I pray for every day who lives in Las Vegas emailed me today. And and what a joy it is to say, you know, I pray for you daily. Well, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's big things, little things, everything, Richard. We need the Holy Spirit and His power every single day. So yeah, you need to get it more than once after you're saved. 340-9585. Here's an anonymous question. Does the Bible deal with the transgender issue? Is God okay with it? Anonymous, there was no conception of being transgender in the ancient world. So no, the Bible doesn't have a verse you can go to that says transgenderism is okay or it's not okay. But this deals with creation. We're made in the image of God. The the issue is, are we content with who we are? If not, then our problem isn't with our gender. The problem is with us, with our heart, with our lack of being content. The idea seems to be, well, I'll be happier this way. But it's always based on how we feel instead of what we are. Now, I'm going to be very direct, and this always frustrates people with me, but there's no other way to deal with. There is no transgender issue. There are people who are confused, and they're confused because they want to be confused because they're not content the way they are. But you see, what Jesus wants us to do when we're not content is to seek him because he's the answer for contentment. So while we live in a world that says, well, I'm a boy, but I was born a boy, but I've always felt like I was a girl, and it's the only way I can be happy, that's really saying to God, I'm not content with you. And the people who struggle with this want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, I know some transgendered people who have been saved throughout this process. That's great. But that doesn't justify a worldwide, really, rebellion against God. There's no such thing as transgender. We are who we are biologically created to be. Male or female, God created this whole idea of gender or sexuality. So no, he's not okay with it. The Bible makes that clear in principle throughout. But what we have to do is understand what Paul said. I've learned the secret of being content in each and every circumstance, well, no matter how I feel, if I turn to Jesus, I'll be content. That's the answer. Now, the problem with this transgender issue, Anonymous, is that the people who are really struggling with it don't know Jesus. And so they have no place to turn. They keep trying things, and the situation only gets worse. They might feel happy for a moment, but it's really a mess. I think Bruce Jenner, uh, now Caitlyn Jenner, legally, um, was was the, the one individual that really brought this issue into all of our living rooms, all of our homes. My difficulty, I mean, Bruce or Caitlyn, whatever you want to call him, he's going to stand before God, she's going to stand before God. Actually, it's going to be he that stands before God. And God's going to say, I died for you, Bruce. I loved you. Why wasn't that enough? So if we really love people who are confused, we tell them the truth about Jesus. 
Let's go to line one from San Antonio. Roger on the air. Roger, thanks for calling. You're on the radio. I want to say I appreciate your information about praying in the Spirit, and I have another question about prayer. Please tell me about praying without ceasing, and I'll hang up and listen. (laughs) Okay, Roger, great. You know, uh, (laughs) uh, especially for, for relatively new Christians, whenever you read Paul's instructions to the church at Thessalonica, Um, We think, I can never do that. That's like 24 hours a day. What it means, Roger, and I refer to it on this program all the time, is just being with Jesus. You know, when the Apostle Paul, um, we can read through his epistles, and we can see what an impressive prayer list that he has. Well, what Paul would do, it doesn't mean that he would lock himself in a prayer closet all day long um, and and just pray for other people uh, or, or even his own needs. It means that while he was on the go, Paul was traveling a lot. You know, we have a tendency to view Paul's ministry as being this fantastic, supernatural, uh, day-to-day experience where miracles after miracles after miracles will be done. Most of Paul's life was really hard. It was really mundane. Uh, He traveled either by foot or on horseback from city to city. There was no um, uh, modern transportation. Uh, They had no other means of communication. He had to go the places he wanted to go. Um, and so Paul made use of his time. He would make sure that every day, every step, he was with Jesus. So if the Philippian church, for example, was on his heart, he would pray for them as he was going to his next destination. And he would talk to Jesus. I give thanks to God for all of you, for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, he was always praying. So that's what it means. It doesn't mean that we pray on our knees, in a closet, um, using King James English. What it means, Roger, is that we're always talking to him. And we're always with him. And the only way I can describe that that makes any sense at all to people is when I say, just be with Jesus. You know, it would be rude if you and I spent the afternoon tomorrow, Roger, and I didn't talk to you or you didn't talk to me. If I called you and said, Roger, let's hang out tomorrow. And then you came over and we hung out and you didn't say a word or I didn't say a word. One of us or both of us would be really, really rude. Well, we treat Jesus that way. So what I try to do, and I've learned to do this from the very beginning of my walk. I I went and took these really long walks with Jesus. And I'd spend time just talking to him. And I could thank him, I could praise him, I could worship him. At the same time, I could, with a grateful heart, make my requests known to God. I could pray intercessory for other people. But all of that takes time. So what I learned to do was take advantage of all of my time. And what I learned, Roger, was that it's so much fun being with him that it then extended to the other things I did. When I go to work, I'd remember that Jesus was with me. And I wouldn't have to talk to other people. I wouldn't have to be bored. I'd just talk to him. Uh, If I go to uh, um, um, something that Paul and I do for fun, we always make sure that there's a place set for Jesus. He is the center of our hearts, our thoughts, and our conversation always. And that's prayer. When I talk with Paula, she reads the Bible to me, and as we talk, Jesus is right there, and he's directing the conversation. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. And, Roger, that one discipline will enhance and enrich your life more than almost anything else I can imagine. I don't think, you know, there are times my mind wanders. I'm old, and my mind wanders just like most uh, of your minds wander. But the minute my mind starts wandering... I started thinking, wait a minute, I don't want to think about that, or I don't want to talk to that person, Lord. I want to talk to you. This is my time with you. And there's just nothing richer, nothing richer than that. 340-9585 from our mobile app. Here is a question from James. No offense to the person who asked about receiving the Holy Spirit. But something he said that caught my attention, he said, referring to the Holy Spirit, what do we need to get it? That's the problem with many Christians. We treat the Holy Spirit as an item or a totem. Wow, great use of the word, James. When who, when need it, he is a part of the Trinity. He is his own person. James, you're absolutely right. I don't think, and I think we've got to be sensitive. Uh, I used to have somebody 
I would say, you know, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to do everything we can to get it. Well, the it referred to the power. And every time I did it, I get this nasty little note from these people in the church. You call the Holy Spirit and it again. He's a person. I know that. So what we have to do is be understanding and sensitive to what the intent of the person asking the question is. You are absolutely right. We treat the Holy Spirit and his power as an item. I like your word totem. Um, But that doesn't mean that we are not thinking of him as his own person. He is almighty God. Every bit as much God as the Father and the Son The Holy Spirit lives in us. I often think, James, that the Holy Spirit is the most frustrated person in the Trinity because he is the one that is constrained by our flesh and blood. He's the one that Paul says we can quench and grieve. And we do that, thus limiting what he wants to do in us and through us. And it is a tragedy to me, James, that so many of us treat the Holy Spirit the way we do. So I agree with you, but give people a little bit of slack. You know, one of the the things that I've often referred to the Holy Spirit in in my own church, talking to the people that know my heart, uh, is that he's the forgotten member of the Trinity. We pray to God the Father, we know all about Jesus, but... It's almost like the Spirit that came to testify of Jesus, to give us power to testify about Jesus, is completely forgotten. Why? Because it is power that comes with obedience. So, James, I agree with you, uh, but remember, we want to be sensitive, understand the context of what somebody is saying. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls. Here is a question from Natalie. Natalie says, I have a question about the megachurch movement. With Willow Creek falling apart, what is the future for large megachurches? How can a model church like Willow Creek fail? Uh, Natalie, let me take this from the back. Willow Creek wasn't a model church. Uh, I think part of our problem in our American way of thinking is that there's somebody that does something and because it, it seems to work because there's a lot of people, that it's a model for us. You know, the only model is the model that Jesus gives us in Acts chapter 2. That's the model church. And Willow Creek never, not for one moment, followed that model. Willow Creek, from the beginning, attracted people to their church by softening the Word of God, by making it more palatable. Um, Didn't want to talk about sin, didn't want to make anybody feel bad. Instead of teaching the Bible, they preached it, cute topical messages. They tickled the ears of the people who went there, and that's why the church grew. You know, it's so easy to have a big church. It really is. And I know that most churches in this country are under 100 people. But every church can grow exponentially in an instant by telling people what they want to hear. And that's always been what we've experienced. So I'm not a fan of what's called the megachurch movement. I'm not a fan of the church growth movement. I'm a fan, a big fan, Natalie, of opening my Bible, teaching it according to the instruction we're given in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and forward, making the church a place where people love one another because we know we're loved by God, a place where we serve one another, a place where we worship God with one another, a place where we can pray together. That's what the model church is from Acts chapter 2. And then letting God bring whoever he's going to bring. Make no mistake, God didn't bring those tens of thousands of people to Willow Creek. Willow Creek marketed those tens of thousands of people. And that was the church model that was always doomed to fall apart. Now, the reason they fell apart, of course, is because of the, the personality in the pulpit who was discovered to have lots and lots of sin, sexual sin. And because he did, you now lots of people are hurting. So I don't think there's any different future for megachurches, large churches. And a megachurch is anything over 1,000 or 1,500 people. That's the the official. Um, 
definition. But what it means is um, they're not doing what God wants them to do. Now, if God makes a church big, uh, we have a lot of people come to our church. Technically, we would be described as a mega church in a little small building. But what we would do is... um, what we would do is just open our doors and receive all who want to come. And God adds to the church daily, such as we're being saved. So I hope that helps. How much time we got? Under two. Okay. We had a question come in. I'm not quite sure what it means, so I'm going to take a shot at it. But it's um, from Paula. Not my Paula, I know. It's from our mobile app. In Jude, rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. What does that look like? I don't know if you mean what the flames of judgment look like or what snatching them from the flames of judgment looks like. From snatching By snatching them, it means that we share the gospel with them. That's what we do. It's our responsibility to snatch people from the flames of judgment. It's, it's, it's a, a, a wonderful word picture. Um, but we do that by delivering them the means of deliverance and that's Jesus so that's what we do and we do that by living for Christ by being filled with the spirit Paula we do that by by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news of salvation and one of the things that thrills me uh, every time we come to church every time I do this radio program one of the things that thrills me is that somebody may be snatched from hell somebody the devil thinks he has squarely, securely in his hands somebody escapes and now they're going to be in heaven with us. What a wonderful picture that is. Uh, If you talk about what the flames of judgment look like um, I think that's just a, a metaphor for eternal torment. Hey, I appreciate you tuning in today. It's been the Tuesday show. I keep saying that so tomorrow, remember that it's Wednesday. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm thrilled that you take the time to tune in. Thank you for your calls and for your questions. You've been listening to me for, well, God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.